You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Grindstone Podcast. As always, I am your host, Matthew Kroll. I am a postdoc in the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue, and this is the Grindstone, the official podcast of Purdue's Department of Philosophy. Um, Today is a special yet awkward podcast. Awkward because we are down to one mic because of technical difficulties. So... If it doesn't sound how it usually does, that's uh, blame me for not knowing that one of these mic cords shorted. But a special podcast because we have with us a distinguished Boilermaker alum today, uh, an alum of our own Department of Philosophy. Very happy to have her back with us on uh, on campus this week. So our guest today is Dr. Sally Scholes, the current chair of the Department of Philosophy at Villanova University. Sally, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's really fun to be back on campus, too. Have you, have you been back to campus since not you graduated? Since, not since the, the mid to late 90s. So Really? Yes, campus has changed dramatically in that time. So it's interesting. Uh, okay. For the record, there could be an entire separate podcast of me picking your brain about how different this campus is, because as you might have yeah. noticed, the architecture and like just the way it's changed, it's, um, it's incredible when people come back to visit, I mean, even from year to year now, because there's just so much stuff being done. But it's nice also to see a few little pockets of sameness, too. So the like, like tri- what? Tri- Triple X Diner or, <laughs> and the um, yes. uh, Harry's yes. Chocolate Shop yeah. is still there, Vaughn's. Yes. I don't know if we're allowed to mention Harry's on this, oh, sorry. but no, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Did you, did you get to Triple X for the uh, biscuits and gravy? Did you? Was uh, that no, it? not this morning. I couldn't stomach that one. Sorry. But um, When you were a grad when student? When I was a grad student, absolutely. Right. Yes. Fair enough. Yeah. Breakfast club ever? Uh, that's the two in the morning crawl. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, um, Once or that's twice. That's the tailgate of the pregame too. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. Then you're. Then you're. A, I what? vet you as a true boilermaker. Oh, there we go. No, good. no. <laughs> Sorry. What were you going to say? Something. I was going to say never. Never after a game. I didn't take in very many games. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I found other reasons. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Um, so real quick, just a little bit of your background. Um, so you did your BA at the University of Portland, correct? Correct. Are you from that area? I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, yes. And Eugene. Then, I lived in Eugene for nine months. You're kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And lived in did Eugene. You, did you like it? I did, but it was a weird time in my life. I just graduated, and I hadn't gone back to do... So I just graduated with my BA from Purdue, and I was just like living with buddies that went to the University of Oregon, working odd jobs while I was applying to grad school and like kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I basically took like a gap year. So I had a weird relationship to it because I loved it. It was great, and I was living out there with friends, but I wasn't going to school. You know, like I didn't grow up there. It was just like I just kind of... Right. crashed on couches for a summer and then a few extra months. <laughs> well, but it's yeah. Eugene is a great town. I don't think I appreciated it growing up, though, okay. right? When you when you live in it all the time, you don't, uh, I think, see um, the natural beauty in particular that's around you. Well, that's the thing. It's a very beautiful town mm-hmm. and very different, obviously, as you know, from this area. Was that, a, was that weird when you first came to Indiana? Were you like, there's no trees? Yes. And no elevation. Very weird. No <laughs> elevation. I felt very landlocked, too. It was interesting because yeah. oh, I yeah. never thought of myself as needing, you know, access to the coast. But um, but then when I came, it, it was almost like a, a, a related to claustrophobia. I, I, I oh, just, interesting. I felt a, 
uh, you know, just the hint of panic that I couldn't get to a coast <laughs> right away. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, okay, because Eugene's like what, like ninety minutes from the Pacific Ocean, if that. basically. If okay, that, if that. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. But see, I grew up. I'm a Hoosier, born and raised. I grew up in Indiana. So if I get near oceans, I freak out. It's too powerful for me. The right. sound of the wave. I'm just like, no, nah, I need to be near like just flat. Right, and it's amazing how those sorts of things sprawl. affect your personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Growing up, right? yeah, yeah. We had sort of opposite <laughs> childhoods in that way. So yeah. you came to Purdue then for graduate work, and you did both your MA and your PhD here, correct? Correct. correct. Um, how how did you enjoy it? What was your experience like coming from Eugene and you know University of Portland? Just generally, what was your experience like here in the grad school and Department of Philosophy? Oh, I I had a great experience. I thought it was nice. um, we were in the recitation hall uh, then recita- oh, recitation okay. building yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and up on the fourth floor. I shared an office with some um, fabulous office mates, uh, Chris Kratz, Jeff Bullington, um, uh, Raj Turvengeden, and and we had a, a blast. Um, nice. We we had chair races in the hallway. Uh, you know, and in, in it was off hours when you're doing philosophy. We really? um, yeah. We but but we also I think that happens uh, nowadays. Of course, yeah. We we learned from each other. We um, we talked ideas. We uh, I think we're we're open and uh, and we also you know corrected each other's mistakes and things. Nice. So, Yes. So that was the little graduate community here. Do you know, have um, your your colleagues, your peers, have they gone on to pursue uh, philosophy professionally? Have they also gone on to academic careers? Many of them, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, this, that was just my office group, but there were there were um, quite a few of us up there on the fourth floor. And uh, and I would say over half are, are still in academia in, in some way. And, nice. And others have um, found other paths that are uh, equally as fulfilling, I, I hope. Do you stay in touch with any of them? Many of them, yes. Uh, particularly, yes. I mean, not just the academics, but just in general. I mean, um, yeah, do you ever see them like around the the conference circuit or anything like that? Uh, so I, I see one or two around the conference circus. Yeah. Circuit. Circus. That's pretty good. Um, yeah. <laughs> it is circuit. a circus. It, a little bit. <laughs> conference is a circus. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, really Christmas cards, I think, is really? the, the, the biggest <laughs> nice. uh, thing. So we, we exchange holiday greetings and things. Nice. That's yeah. awesome. My sister has two kids now, and so she got into sending, like, the picture of the family, like, Christmas card. And it's, like, such a nice tradition to, like, mm-hmm. get a, yeah, the family mm-hmm. Christmas card. A lot of my cousins have, like, kids now, and it's an interesting. Because I remember being a kid and my mom getting, like, 75 Christmas cards from people I'd never heard of. But that's a nice, it is a nice yeah. annual, like, way to stay in touch. Um, so you were here at Purdue in the early 90s. Correct. So what was it like at that time being a woman in philosophy, being a graduate student, a woman in philosophy? Has it changed? Um, in what ways has it changed? I realize that's a long time to cover, but what was your experience like here in the department and just generally at the time? Because um, I'm at and this may be completely ignorant, but to me it seems like it would have been a very male-dominant field then, but maybe I'm wrong, and I'd be happy to be wrong. You know, it it may have been a male-dominant field, and I think the numbers bear that out, but I'll I'll tell you that this department um, was clearly on the cutting edge of, of being conscious of the need for efforts to change that. And they, nice. uh, when my entering class, um, I think we were half 
half female. Uh, and uh, about how big uh, was like the cohort? Do so you I I was talking to somebody um, recently about that and and can't quite remember. I think there actually might have been ten of us. Um, That's a good size. Huge class. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's uh, nice. But I though. think that I, I think you know not all of us um, were in the the PhD. Some of us were in the master's program. Okay. Um, uh, perhaps or I'm I'm not sure how it all broke out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, but I remember. A, a, a nice opening picnic with um, a oh, lot of people, and nice. I, I certainly did not feel like I was an outsider um, in any ma- manner. So yeah, yeah. either because I was a new student or because I was female, I, th- I thought people uh, really made an effort. I also, you could see the faculty were uh, very conscious of the need to um, to welcome and teach diverse topics. And nice. uh, I, I, when it came time to picking a dissertation topic. I looked back on all my papers, and I had written on oppression in every class, you know, from <laughs> from Kant to Dewey to, to whatever. Nice. And um, not every school would have allowed that, but but Purdue did. Uh, somewhat nice. ironically, I don't think I was even actually aware of the, the gender disparity in philosophy. Okay. I just love philosophy. That's awesome. And I wanted to be here, and and um, and I, I felt like I had the system in place to flourish. So that's awesome. Yeah. And I certainly I don't want to, you know, boil your career down to that, but it is um I know that today you're here giving a talk for the diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. initiative and that's something that's a great initiative that we have in the department and obviously that is the aim of the initiative is to create more um, diversity and a more inclusive atmosphere on what is now the, the seventh floor of Beering the philosophy department though. I guess you're saying fourth floor of recitation. That's yeah. Yeah. So we. So when you came back, is this the first time you've been back since we moved to the seventh floor of uh, of Beering? I think the department moved my last year. Oh, nice. So, nice. Uh, so I was. You know, the when you're writing your dissertation, you're sort of in, sort of out of the department. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So I don't have a, a strong connection to this building, um, but but I do believe that we had already moved. Yeah. Who was your chair of your dissertation? Uh, Bill McBride. Bill McBride. Yes. Okay. I had assumed that. And so, I mean, obviously, Dr. McBride is still here. So that's, you know, nice connection. Um, where, do you remember some of the other, um, like, committee people and whether or not they're still around? Yes. Leonard Harris was on my committee. Also so, still, he here, still here, Dr. Harris. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, Kermit Scott, uh, who actually left the, the university, he was transitioning out as he was um, also on my committee and, and other committees. He okay. uh, took up social work um, oh, as nice. well. Oh, yeah. He Interesting. Was, but he, he specialized in medieval philosophy. And <laughs> the, the urban legend, which I actually think is true, was that um, Kermit the Frog was, uh, he, that he was a good friend of Jim Henson as a child. And that Kermit the Frog really? is uh, is named after Kermit Scott. So yes, so you'll have to talk to Bill McBride to, to see if that's verifiable. But um, is is do you know is this person still around? Uh, that I don't know. I lost complete touch. Okay. Because uh, uh, note to the grindstone yes, that right. that would be uh, that would be a great yeah fabulous a great podcast. podcast. Not yes. that this isn't Sally. I oh, want right, you right. to think <laughs> that this is a great podcast here. But no, that'd be an interesting guest to have. So that's okay. Interesting. Well, and he could verify the the legend. That's why. Right? I mean, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I think the grindstone should handle the the Muppets at some point. And I think uh, yeah, we're There's good a lot for of that. philosophy there. I'll spare you all my um, my Grover impersonation. But as listeners know, I have some good impersonations, and Grover is one of them. Um, I, 
Here at the Grindstone, we consider ourselves journalists of particular integrity, so I have to ask some hard-hitting questions about Purdue in the 90s. Namely, I'm dying to know, what was the fashion like at Purdue in the <laughs> 90s? Because I've never seen Purdue as the most fashion-forward campus. And if you, re- well, I'm sure you do remember the early 90s, that was an abysmal, an abysmal fashion five or six years there. Um, do you remember? Do you remember the fashion at Purdue um, in the '90s? Well, so uh, I think I was a student that that, like every student, wore jeans and a sweatshirt. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, standard. The, the uniform. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do. Yeah, exactly. I do remember uh, there in the early '90s. There was some. There were hairstyles. Okay. Uh, now I never had ones. My hair is actually the same as it was when I was in eighth grade. So, <laughs> so keep that. But a little, a little more gray. But the hairstyles, uh, women's hairstyles in particular, had a lot of hairspray um, and a yes. lot of height. Yes, so, that's what I'm thinking, like yeah. mall bangs. Yes, um, exactly, exactly. I guess maybe that's a little more 80. Well, no, like I guess mall bangs and tight rolled jeans, that's right in that like 90, 91, 92 my my real question is: Did did people wear zubaz to to class? And I don't know if you remember what zubaz were. What they is. were like brightly colored, like cotton sweatpants that had these sort of like tiger print thing happening. Do you remember? I don't that? remember any of that. Oh, I don't think it was here. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Well, that's thankfully, too funny. yeah, yeah. Then yeah. then Purdue's done well for itself. Yeah. Um, so jumping ahead a little bit, um, after you graduated Purdue, um, what, where did your life take you? Where did your career take you? So I went on the market in, uh, I think, 93. Okay. And, and, and I, I had um, uh, an offer for a three-year, and then I also had an offer to be a, a legal advocate at a shelter for victims of domestic violence. Wow, that's and interesting. He, here in, uh, in Lafayette. Oh, okay. And, and I took that. It, w- it was part-time. It paid oh. v- very little money. But it was in line with what my dissertation was about, and okay. I, I felt that it, it, um, it, I had a sort of compulsion to, to put philosophy in action and, um, and to, to, do, to learn more. And, and I think I learned as much at that shelter in that one year as I, as I did in the, my classes as well. It, it, it's a different type of learning. It's a, yeah. a street smarts uh, sort of learning. Yeah. But it had a tremendous impact on me, and it was it was terrific. Uh, That's it, awesome. It was also, though, a lesson because I realized that I am not cut out for social work. It that takes very okay. special people um, to, yes. to do that kind of work, and yeah, um, and I I did it, and I tried my best for a year, but um, but wow, I admire those people who can stick with it. That is so. super interesting. So I did not know this. I know if you don't mind, I want to delve into this a little bit. Sure. So. Um, when I took a year off between graduate school or my undergrad and graduate school, in fact, when I was out in Eugene, I was working at a group home um, with uh, adults with uh, developmental disabilities. And then I moved back to South Bend, Indiana, where I'm from, for a few months when I kind of knew that I was going to go back to grad school, you know, sort of had like a little bit of my next plan, going back to do my master's. And I worked at um, a center that dealt um, <clears throat> that dealt with people, he, adults, again, that were living independently, that had severe and persistent mental illnesses, most of whom were schizophrenics. So I have some similar wow, like, experience. Yeah. Um, but I agree, and um, this is not a story I tell often, but I, 
I quit. Like, I quit the job. And it was like, I just reached a moment where I <laughs> had this kind of uh, little row with uh, my boss and was just, and I just, I had different approaches to things. And I just didn't always think that they were really putting the person first. They tended mm-hmm. to put the patient first. So I'll keep names of where I worked and everything out of it. But, um, that's just to say, I want to go back to what you were saying, and I agree. People that do social work and that are good and great social workers are really amazing, beautiful people, and it does require a certain personality and comportment and a certain spirit, and I'm, I'm always in awe of people that make a career out of that because I, get, I did it for a, a few months and just realized I was not cut out for it, but also wasn't professionally trained in it enough to make good arguments as to why my method was better. A good point, and and um, and yet I would say that philosophers are uh, are trained in a way that um, if we could pair social work uh, training with philosophy, that that would be a really nice combination. Because yeah. I do think that philosophers have something to give. We we imagine the world differently, and and we problem solve in um, in a way that takes into consideration so many different avenues of action, and those are useful. Those are useful skills, and it sounds like. You know, even the short time you were in in your place, you brought in some um, ideas. They may have been challenged, yeah, yeah, right, or or challenging. Yeah, but, I tried. Um, but that's often important in um, situations. That's so. a great point you make, and I think too. And I'm curious to hear what you think about this. I think also when you study philosophy, and this is going to sound really corny, but like you are studying humans and the mind to some extent, that's and you're studying how humans deal with, you know, our condition as being human in the world. And I think that does build a sympathy and an empathy to be able to work in these kinds of, um, these sorts of fields. I agree. I agree. I have to tell you that in my experience in the domestic violence, it also had the opposite because I, Mm. I learned stories. I heard, I heard things that I never thought was humanly possible. So I saw Mm. that in many Mm. ways that the, the other side of of humanity, the side of humanity. Yes. Yeah. Right. And well, I'm uh, sorry to hear that. Well, uh, you know, I'm sorry for those, those yeah, victims. Yeah. No. Yeah. I should it, say yes. It stresses the importance of um, of the need to continue advocacy and, and things. Yeah. No. Sorry, I should backtrack a little because you had mentioned your dissertation. So, what was the title of your dissertation? <laughs> I forgot to ask you that. But what? So, because you said that partly um, lent you towards working um, with domestic violence victims for a year. You said it was a year, right? Because I want year. to come back to sort of how you tri- tri- um, transition to professional philosophy. But what was the dissertation on? So the dissertation, I actually had to look up the title recently, but uh, <laughs> it was uh, the legitimating function of the dichotomy of the public and private in systemic oppression. So quite a mouthful, right? As, and as any good dissertation should be. Exactly, except yeah. that I didn't have a colon, so that was my big uh, rebellion, is that there's no colon in my dissertation title. Um, so. Nice. Does yours, yeah, no does yours subti- have a colon? Absolutely. Oh, yes, right. It's Muthologos has lost such ground, which is a line of Olson's poetry, and then I think it's history, mythology, history, and orality in Charles Olson's poetics. Not that anybody needed to know that, but yes, I was big on the colon and the subtitle. Well, and you have the other part, too. Three three yeah, terms yeah, yeah. in a list, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, no, I'm big on triangles. I'm yes. big on the trip to, yeah, exactly. Good. Yeah, that's good. But <laughs> um, the, so the dissertation looked at different social theories and, and how they split this uh, public and private sphere. And interesting. In the early 90s, this, you know, this was cutting-edge 
well, I like to think of, my, of it as cutting edge. I'm not sure that it really was. But, but nevertheless, sure um, it, was. It, it was important. And, and the Violence Against Women Act had just um, come out. And, and so if you think of especially how law had protected the private sphere, right, and kept it, um, uh, certain elements of the family outside of public and policy debates and and. Um, so private in terms of families, not just private like business. No, no, yeah. yeah in yeah. fact, private like businesses, that's a separate issue. Yeah, I, yeah. I was, uh, mine is about um, the, dom- the domestic. We had domestic privacy, yes, yeah. And public uh, public discussions and things, yes. Wow, interesting. So you, the Violence Against Women Act, is that what it, that's what it was called, correct? That just had just been. Yeah, I can't remember the exact law. day when that um, came out. But, but during but, your time as a PhD but, student? Um, so right this around was that like, time, yeah. Um, early 90s. George the First as I like to call him, era, George H.W. Um, Bush, right? It would have been like during those years? So that's interesting. Or end of the um, Reagan era? No, you, you know, I actually, I want to say that Clinton was the one who signed that. So, but, you know, I don't trust Oh, no, no, that's why, so, yeah, no, no, sorry. But yeah, yeah, um, I guess if it was 92, yeah, it would have been Clinton. Yeah. Right, that, and, so well, that's later. Okay, interesting. I have to profess, I when you mentioned the name of that act is one that I'm completely ignorant of. Although at the time, in fairness, like I was in middle school, so I wasn't exactly real hip to like <laughs> what was happening on uh, on Capitol Hill. Well, and you have to no imagine, excuse, but you have to imagine though in in um, in the 70s, 80s, uh, it, it, domestic violence it wasn't the you know part of a. a regular conversation that people would have. Mm. Now, you know, there are flyers on uh, bathroom stalls. Uh, yeah. There are flyers in every doctor's office I've ever been into uh, that, that give numbers of places you can call. We've really had a, a bit of a cultural transformation in terms of how we think about and, um, and address issues of, of uh, violence against women. We're still a long way from where it needs to be. Sure. But uh, but nevertheless, uh, just the fact that it's it's okay to bring it up in everyday conversation, yeah. that it is brought up, and that um, that doctors actually will ask you uh, about it if you're living in a safe spot. Mm. That's part of a normal, or at least it's been part of uh, normal exams um, since for the last twenty years or so. Um, I think that's important. And it's that's very important. So there's heightened cultural awareness. Mm-hmm. And um, just from your perspective, having studied this and researched it, I, I assume that the resources available to victims and advocacy in general, both in the political sphere, but say just the broader sociocultural sphere, I assume has been has increased um, and improved, I imagine, um, at least since the time you were doing your dissertation, or I don't know. Again, maybe maybe I'm completely wrong, but it sounds like I think it, resources and ag- and advocacy have also grown, and yeah. along with just the general awareness of the conversation. I think so. I think so. Like say? I said, I think there's a long way yet sure. to go. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, the NFL is a good case in point, right? How they're mm. handling or not handling uh, sexual violence is a, is is. An issue. Shameful. Yeah, but it. But I don't want to say too much about the NFL because they are um, because they're powerful, powerful people. No, I will say this. Oh, I'm a big fan of the Chicago Bears football franchise. And a couple years ago, they got a free agent who had multiple domestic violence um, and sexual assault charges. And it's just when you're a fan, like I love the game. I love the NFL. But and other things that have been happening over the last couple of years, in particular, um, you know, during the pregame, mm-hmm. the uh, the anthem in particular. I mean, it's just, it's, well, yeah, yeah, powerful people, but um, frightening and and clearly not handling 
um, yeah, these broader social issues. But it, it also Very shows well. you how certain issues are, are connected and tied in um, to other cultural systems. And, mm -hmm. yeah, so. and so the systemic oppression aspect of, of your early research, um, what, so this is kind of a general question. I'm sorry if this is far too general to be effective, but um, what is systemic in this context? Uh, I haven't read the dissertation in a while, so uh, so. <laughs> well, I, it can be. Even, I mean, even just your that, yeah, your armchair take. I mean, what is what well, is I re I remember systemic? Uh, talking about uh, systemic oppression in contrast to other forms of oppression, where there is an identifiable oppressive group. Uh, sorry, oh, okay. oppressor group, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and yeah. whereas with systemic oppression, it often occurs um, simply, it can even occur in, in systems that are uh, meant to facilitate justice, right? But somehow the system is set up to, to exclude, to marginalize, to, uh, to oppress. Um, now, usually that's not an intentional thing because with in intentions, we can blame someone. We can hmm. say, you, you did this wrong, yeah, right? Yeah. Or you're, you're benefiting um, because of this. In um, with the dichotomy of the public and the private, uh, I argued that it was simply how social theory was splitting these spheres and and really ascribing different uh, social and political and moral values to each sphere that mm. caused harm. So mm. it's it's within the system of how we think about this uh, split in social existence. Interesting. Um, so, okay, just to jump in the interest of time, we have plenty of time, but just in the interest of time, we'll kind of jump ahead a little bit. So you did the, well, not jump ahead, but you, you got the PhD, you worked for a year in social work, and uh, you were still on the job market at the time. I mean, where, where were you personally in terms of, you were still applying for academic jobs, and that's really what you wanted to do, or when you had, sort, when you had decided to work... Um, with victims of, of domestic violence, was that in any way a career choice for you? I mean, where were you sort of at personally? It's a really great question, and uh, I, I don't think I really remember. I, okay. I, uh, but I, I think that, um, that I always, that it was a year, that I just wanted to, to take a year. Yeah. Uh, and that, that I then wanted to go back on the market, and I did, uh, and, uh, and got the Villanova job. Um, Oh, so you've been the there year. ever since. I've been there the whole time, yeah. Do you think it's important for people that study philosophy, particularly at a graduate level, to have these kinds of professional life experiences, either between the time they do a bachelor's in whatever field they study and come back to do a PhD, um, or like as you had this year... I mean, I think it's really important, but also I came back to do my PhD when I was 31, and I'd had other, you know, I took a year off, went to do a master's, took some time off, did another master's, you know, like I, I sort of was figuring out what I wanted to do, um, you know, had some middling, you know, corporate management experience, and I feel like, and I, not to personalize this, but I'm a big, big advocate of this because I feel like I learned just a lot about life and myself in a way where there's a practical, real-world experience that then, when I read philosophy or think through philosophy, particularly issues of social, political philosophy um, or ethics, where I feel like I have a world experience. And I'm not, this is not to <laughs> say that, I don't want to personalize this, but I just to share with you, like Mike, it sounds we have, like we have some similar experiences. So as an I, advisor, I, do you ever say to your students, you know, you should go get a job and pay rent and like <laughs> do something other than philosophy just to help you, 
maybe put some things in perspective. So I often say do something different than philosophy. Do something not 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 in its stead of, but um, but I think it's important that people also see that there's there is a bigger world out there that they are contributors um, in 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 this world well beyond whatever they're going to contribute in philosophy. Hmm. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I also worked uh, for the Red Cross and and volunteered at. at a homeless shelter too, and these were so. Imp- looking back, <laughs> nice. they were so important to me because they, you know, as a graduate student, you have this tendency to zero in on your project, and yeah. um, and it's a very selfish time, right? And, and can be a very selfish, very isolating, time. very yeah. isolating. Yeah, yeah. But when you're connected to these other networks, it puts everything else into perspective, and uh, and I I really do think it helps with the writing process, so it also helps just basically with time management. If I know I have to teach a Red Cross class at 6 o'clock, I've only got four hours between 2 and 6, I've got to to use that well. So there are those practical elements, but I agree with you completely. I think that that seeing the the place of philosophy in the wider world can uh, be facilitated through, through working for a year, um, volunteering, just seeing, doing something outside of, of reading philosophy. My master's advisor, um, I went to the University of Essex and did a master's in continental philosophy. My master's advisor, um, I was thinking about, you know, going into a PhD program and a lot of my cohort were applying for PhDs and getting in places and I knew I was coming back to the states just for personal reasons but also you know figured this would be where I would settle if I were going to do a PhD um, just because it's you know different system overseas it's just hard being you know away from family or whatever so I knew I wasn't going that next fall and I'd felt really defeated because everyone was like I'm going to like do a PhD and I was like I have no idea I'm moving home with my parents in my mid-20s I need to like go find a job that pays money and then figure out if I want to do a PhD or not. So, but my advisor is funny. She told me she had many great, you know, nuggets of wisdom that year, but she told me to wait until I was 40 to go back to do my PhD. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Like, why is that? And she was like, well, she says something like philosophy should be thinking about life and you haven't really lived yet. And oh, so yes. you're 40 kind of, you know, she was like, no, just, just do it when you're older do, and don't even do it like for a career. Just go like study interesting things like philosophy, but do it when you're like firmly an adult and you've had some time to suffer and think, you know, I think she was basically saying you need to go through a handful of existential crises and life moments to really to do philosophy. Um, I think she's right. She's right. And and, I do think that's true to some extent. Have you ever read a book? you know, that you read as an undergrad and then again after some life experience, yes. you see it very differently yes. and it's, it's important I to have see it two. I have two. Can I mention these? Because yes, I, I want to hear if you have if some too, but I have two. They're both um, American lit. Um, Catcher in the Rye and Great Gatsby. And I realize it's a very limited demographic in terms of the authorship and roughly modernist American literature, but Catcher in the Rye in particularly or in particular, when you read it when you're in high school, most people read it in high school, you think it's about an angsty teenager. And then as you get older, although it's, you know, ambiguous when he's telling this story, because at the beginning, if you remember, Holden Caulfield sort of lays out, and it's like he's talking to a counselor or a therapist or something, and you're not really sure how long ago this happened. It's clearly reflective. But I think people 
teach it at that level, high school, that age, and read it as an angsty teenager. But trust me, when you read it in like your late 20s and like your first quarter life crisis or even in your early to mid 30s, you realize it's a story about an angsty man in his 40s, you know, and you're like, oh, no, this is really like, this is an angry, angsty, older man, mm -hmm. you know, or middle-aged man. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Gatsby's the same way. You're like, oh, this isn't Gatsby's all about, good. like, you know, roaring 20s and, like, romance. And you're like, no, this is about someone who's going through, like, a real crisis in his personal life, expressing it. And so both of those books, for me, work really well. And I've read them both, like, read them, you know, in high school, read them again in my 20s, and read them again in my 30s. And I, I've made a plan to, like, read them once a decade because they both age very well. That's really a, a great plan. You should write it up too. It sounds it sounds like a really interesting just the, <laughs> Thanks, the, I never the thought insights about that, that you but, get from each one. And connection to the narrator too is mm -hmm. big because you, when you when you're closer to I think the author's age and not that I'm, you know, conflating author and narrator or even authorial and you know like all those kind of philosophical and literary criticism questions aside, I think that's part of it too. When you get closer to the narrator's age or the author's age, I think that you can just sense something where you're like, oh, I understand where this person is at and what maybe really is happening behind this, really in quotes, of, you know, like what's really happening behind this narrative. So do you have um, books that sort of... Well, I was I was trying to think. Affect you in that way, or I, affected you more as there's, the there's a book that later? I read that I that I've read numerous times, and uh, and I I guess I would say that I, I see something different. I don't think it's as intentional as your plan, um, but mine is a tale of two cities. And nice, and, you know, when you when you read it in high school, you're Dickens, paying attention right? to the yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. you're paying attention to the to the revolution and and that sort of thing. Later, you can see the relationships, and you can see and and and, and then as a Philosopher, you, I, I think you, you also see certain, um, uh, I don't know, moral dilemmas, I guess, would come, really come to the fore. Do you feel like when your research or as your research has progressed and your own philosophical interests have progressed um, and evolved and changed over time, whether it's A Tale of Two Cities or any literature, I don't know how often you get to just sit down and, you know, yeah, read fiction, but if you do, do you feel like the questions you're asking and analyzing in literature change as your philosophical interests change or as you, you know, like you're researching for your next book, your next article, do you, do you find sometimes that like those are the questions? Because that was really hard for me as an undergrad. Like if I were taking a phenomenology class, I'd read a novel and it'd just be like all these, you know, phenomenological questions, take an ethics class and it's ethical. It was, that would kind of bother me in some ways because I could see I was so focused on right. these, you know, broadly speaking, philosophical concerns of whatever, you know, ilk, right. whatever. Right. field within philosophy. But you're also, as you're reading, you're working out uh, uh, ideas, right? Mm. So I think it, it, it's sort of playing a, a, a dual role there. On the one hand, I think we always read with an agenda. I actually tell my students in one of the classes I teach, I tell them to read with an agenda. Mm. I say, pick one, you know, and, and see if you can maintain it throughout the term. It, it, it brings the texts alive in a different sort of way. If you're, mm. if you're focusing in on a particular idea and then seeing how or whether that idea is traced through the text. Uh, hmm. in, in the other, I, one of the pieces of advice that I always give graduate students is, is to always have a novel ready, right? Yeah. Always have a novel at your side and, and read it and give the time to read it. In part, I think it actually makes you a better writer because hmm. we, 
we're learning from from others. So yeah. we read something beautiful and yeah. and then write. I read from a stylistic master. You yes, know? yes. And yeah. then um, write your philosophy dissertations like Virginia Woolf. That would be my advice there we to go. everybody. <laughs> write yes. it like. To the lighthouse. But the but the other thing is that we need to get out of our our own heads sometimes. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and however you do that is is great. Whether it's it's exercise or meditation, or um, I I actually believe it or not tend to plants and, and watch plants nice. grow. So that's awesome. And but reading a novel does that too, and it, it shows yeah. you a different world. I think it does open up different ways of thinking in in doing that, and that can be very helpful. So. Or for example, binging on. Burn Notice on Amazon Prime. Not yes. that I know anything about that right, right. season five. <laughs> um, no, yeah, but no, I do think, um, but that's to say with music and film, I mean, it is nice to, it, I think it's good to have that content to apply your philosophical thought to, but also, as you say, to kind of stretch your mind a little bit and get away from it, especially when you're in grad school, I think, and when you're um, in the dissertation writing process, because as you mentioned earlier, it's so isolating and it is, a, you know, very self um, focused endeavor, but really any research endeavor is, and I think that's I think that's important. Do you find that your work life balance is <laughs> putting you on the spot here? But do you feel like you have a good work life balance? Oh, do you feel like uh, a, yeah. you know, as a philosopher and as and particularly as a chair of a department of philosophy, I imagine there's you know many responsibilities that come with that. Do you feel like that's something that? philosophy and studying philosophy has helped you do is achieve a certain work-life balance? I think age has helped me to achieve (laughs) work-life balance because I'm... uh, The greatest philosopher. Time. Time, exactly. And I I turned 50 last year and I... uh, There is... It's something like a switch and all of a sudden you realize a lot more doesn't matter. Uh, A lot of the things Hmm. that I, I was investing so much time and effort in you know, if I miss a deadline, if I'm a little bit late, it doesn't matter, mm. right? Um, we're not heart surgeons, so that's that's the good news, right? <laughs> no, no one's life is depending on on our next article. Yeah. But yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, except except for your own, if you don't have a job. Well, yet, there so, is that. Yeah. yeah that, okay. That's a good. That's a good <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But I do uh, I do maintain a, a fairly rigorous. Um, well, rigorous isn't. It sounds like a harsh word, but a fairly um, strict solid, normal, how about that, regular schedule, right, yeah, that, in, yeah, yeah. that involves... Routine. Um, yeah, routine. Yeah. And I also, I, and I, t- I try my best to, for instance, not answer, not look at email after <laughs> a certain time every evening, right? You have yeah. to turn it off. I think email you has made things so much worse in, in terms of administrative workloads. Technology so. in general, smartphone, like I joked earlier about binge watching TV, but it's true. You're just yes. like, what am I going to do this weekend? I don't really feel like writing anything, so maybe I should just watch all of season two of this show. You know? <laughs> just right. like, yeah, that's the best idea I've ever had. Right. Um, <laughs> and oftentimes it is the best idea you've ever had. Um, in the interest of time, we'll jump ahead a little bit. So you are currently the chair of the Department of Philosophy at Villanova. Correct. In terms of your career, did, was that something you aspired to? Was this something that just sort of grew organically? I mean, was it? Uh, how did that sort of happen? And um, yeah, uh, how did you sort of transition into that role of being head of a department and administrator on top of wanting to teach, I'm sure, and read and research and publish? Right, good. The, so a chair role is different than a head. Um, so oh, okay. So just, uh, a chair sort of facilitates 
things, but is, is answerable both to the faculty and then also the administration. So there's a very, ah, okay. uh, I, I would say the, the head has more power. Um, okay. in, in my view, being the chair of a department is part of civic responsibility. We okay. take our turns. And, and how long is your term? Uh, term is three years. Okay. I'm actually, though, in, I'm in my fourth year, so I'm, I am in my second term. And I'm, uh, I told my colleagues that my number one goal is to make sure that someone is ready to take my place when, yeah. uh, when I'm done. And it's not that, that I you know, am in a grand hurry to get out, but it's because I, I do believe that uh, departments are healthiest when there's some, if you're in the chair system, right, uh, if there's some rotation in, in that. Uh, chair, you need hmm. new ideas. You need yeah. you need fresh energy. You need um, uh, to question the old ways. It goes back to what we said earlier about social work, right? Sometimes yeah. it's important to have an outsider come in and see what you're doing and and say, why are we doing it that way? And see if there's a better way to do it. Are there or is there an initiative or two that you've started in your time there that you're particularly proud of and would like to share with the listeners? Yes, I've, we've we've grown the major tremendously at Villanova. Nice. So uh, I am particularly metrics. We're getting into brass tacks yeah, now. Right. We're getting into numbers, <laughs> data. Yeah, I'm I'm particularly <laughs> proud of that because uh, one of great. the things that it did it, it simultaneously redirected our energy toward the undergrads and in doing so um, simultaneously re-cemented our community. Right. That's because awesome. We really that That's we brilliant. were all in this for the same reason. Yeah. So it, it lifted Which some of the... Which is the money. Yeah, right. Uh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, it lifted some of the competition that you get from, uh, for instance, just focusing on graduate students. Because believe it or not, um, faculty members are, are interested in working with graduate students. And, mm. and there is a, a certain sort of cachet by having graduate students and things. But you forget... That, that that's not really what um, philosophy is all about. Of course we want to support graduate students, and of course we want to, to um, uh, help them along their journeys to, uh, to pro- professional philosophy or however they're going to use their degree. But uh, the undergrads are, are the bread and butter of what we hmm. do. So it's, it's why we exist. It's also just fun to see a first-year student discover that ability to think and, and you can see it on their faces. Yeah. It's just glorious um, to see that. Freshmen and, I, and sophomores, I love it. Yeah. Sorry to cut you up, yeah, but I no. love it. I love teaching classes at that age. It's so fun. It is, especially first first semester uh, freshmen, right? Fall, usually in the fall, but but can be either fall or spring. When they first come in, um, and they were probably like me, did not know what philosophy was, right? Had to take it for a requirement or, or whatever. Um, to discover that style of thinking and, and that you're invited to uh, offer some well-reasoned views on things, that's pretty exciting to, to have that invitation. Yeah, that's amazing. I And congratulations for helping your department grow in that way. That's great. Um, oh, that's awesome. I And there is just something about, you said, you know, kind of seeing someone coming to that thought, like a young university or college-age learner. And it, there is something that's like really exciting about when you someone makes a point in class and maybe you say, okay, but like based on that logic or that rationale, this is sort of how it plays out. You know, like these are some of the consequences of what you're saying. Or here's actually an historical precursor to what you're saying. Like so and so had a theory that's similar to that. And helping them make those connections. Uh, the the face that I love is when they make that like, and now my parents will never be right again face. You know? 
know when you see that, like, and now I know how to uh, how to successfully argue for my position. Like when you, uh, but it is a really fun, you know, it's a fun age and it's a fun, I guess, just place in their life and level of their intellectual growth, if that makes sense, to to interact with with people. Right. Um, so that's great. And do you enjoy your teaching? Oh, sorry, you were going to say. something. Oh, I, I was just going to say I use that in my teaching. I use this this arguing with the parents. Yeah. I also I also <laughs> yeah. t- tell my students, look, you need to know this this these styles of critical thinking because you're you're um, you're going to have um, people in your life that you need to argue with, and you need to to have. The, these skills behind you, and the, and they, I think they see it. They know it, right? In particular, uh, I I say, well, look, you're gonna have a child one day who asks you why, <laughs> and and you want to say more than just because I said so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, my niece gets on one of those why, why, and I, but I just give her very straight, like factual answers. Like I'm doing laundry. Why? Well, because my clothes were dirty. Why? Well, because I wore that. But it's funny. You get to about six or seven rounds, and then she's just like. Okay, and she'll just kind of move well, on cute. with it. Yeah, but because I've, I've, I've heard like some of my friends who are parents just say like, uh, like you know, once that starts, sometimes it's hard to stop. But I've found that if you're very just matter of fact about it, although granted I'm an uncle, not a parent, so I'm sure there's also some um, some interesting antagonisms that develop between <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you and your own children when they get into one of these sort of circuits where it's, well, why, why, why? But that is interesting. Yeah, you want to be able to say something more substantive than, you know, because I said so or then, or um, I guess then, you know, because that's my opinion or whatever yeah, right. it is like whatever that because that's the way I see the world. Um, I forgot to ask you, backtracking, um, what was was there a moment when you decided to start studying philosophy? A particular book, a class you took, just someone in your life you knew that studied philosophy. When, when did Sally Scholes say, "I think I'm gonna study philosophy and I think I'm gonna take this on as yeah. a life path"? Do you remember that moment? I or do. A moment. I do. I, I I would say that it wasn't a single moment, but sure. Uh, I. I didn't know what philosophy was. I've indicated that, um, and uh, but I went to a Catholic university. The University of Portland is is run by the um, Holy Holy Cross priests, and and um, so we were required. I to didn't take, know that. I didn't know yeah. University of Portland is yeah. It's Catholic sister, school, sister school of Notre Dame. Yeah, because well, because when you said Holy Cross, I was going to say I'm from South Bend. I grew up right down the street, and I was going to say that's mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. same yeah, order. Holy ironically, Cross. of course, they the the priests often viewed University of Portland as sort of being sent to the boonies. But Portland is so much prettier than South Bend. No offense, no offense to South Bend. <coughs> no, no, but, I mean, but Portland is, is a little. It's an acquired down. taste, exactly. South Bend, Indiana. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever been um, there? I have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful but campus. So we were at that time. This is uh, 1986. Um, we were required to take four courses in philosophy and four in theology in order to complete our... So very Catholic school, liberal arts, liberal education tradition. Yes. Interesting. And it was my first class. And and I remember um, I I had, even as a high school uh, kid, been working uh, in soup kitchens and and homeless shelters and things like that. It was just part of of growing up Catholic, actually. You did service. Service, yeah. And um, I, I don't know how, but reading Descartes, did it for me. And so Interesting. For, for some reason, I was looking for something to help me make sense of this world reality where some were homeless and, and others were not. Oh, yeah. Wow. And, and Descartes um, just sort of opened up this way of thinking. And it, of course, you know, he doesn't talk about homeless and, and it's a hard yeah. stretch to get from the meditations to, to thinking about social <laughs> yeah. philosophy. Yeah, the ball of wax to yeah, social right. and political philosophy. Yeah. yeah, But it was the style. It was the questioning. It was it was Interesting. saying it doesn't have to be this way. Right. That um, 
a, it was just deep, a critical reassessment me. and reframing of yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. That yes. is really interesting. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. Oh, thank you for asking. Um, I was going to say, it's funny, though, because when you said Descartes, I, the, one of my first reactions was, well, now that seems far afield from from what you do. Um, so I should say, you are on campus today. Again, you're visiting the um, for our Diversity and Inclusion Initiative, and you are giving a talk today. Today is Friday, March the 1st. This podcast will come out after the fact. But the title of today's talk is, I wrote this down. Where is it? There we go. It is Pernicious Solidarities, Equity in Solidarity Relations. And that is the title of the talk you are giving today, and I believe you have a book titled Political Solidarity, correct? Correct. Published in 2008. So as we wrap up here, um, that seems to be where your current research is and where your focus is in a nutshell. And I'm sorry, we're getting, we're getting towards the top of the hour when they'll take the room from us. But, so what is political solidarity? And just a little um, maybe abstract of the talk you're giving today, if people are interested. So, well, people uh, are I, interested. I mean, if they're interested in hearing more about it. it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I take political solidarity to be a, uh, a committed moral relationship where uh, individuals join together in a, in a collective uh, for a particular cause. Uh, and, and I uh, actually, in the book, I specify that it has to be a social justice cause. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. I think we are often uh, or we're sometimes mistaken about that, those social justice Ends, but nevertheless, um, that's the idea: is that that individuals and the, and it can be a, a strong commitment, a weak commitment. Um, we we might know each other, we might not, uh, but that the, there's something transformative that uh, in making this commitment, I actually transform um, my everyday decisions in a in a concrete way, hmm. and and I see my actions connected with others, and so that we're acting hmm. in concert. Uh, for change. So uh, one of the examples I use throughout the book is fair trade coffee. That, uh, that okay. I- I- if, if I could drink fair trade coffee because I think it's the best coffee, right? That's not solidarity. I could drink fair trade coffee because I think, um, uh, uh, it, I don't know, it, I don't know, it's healthier for me, something like that. Okay. I don't think that's solidarity. But if I have a conscious, um, uh, if I have an awareness to, of the uh, plight of farmers in um South America, Central America, mm-hmm. right, uh, and the the I don't know pressing uh, influence of um, multinational corporations on their small farms and things like that. I might, out of solidarity, join with these farmers. They don't know me. They they don't know that I've joined in solidarity. But it, my actions might be motivated by the sense of of injustice that they are experiencing. And so I want to help their situation. I want to contribute to their situation in some way. Mm-hmm. And so so I purchased fair trade coffee. I probably do a whole bunch of other things as well, right? So I'm not just saying you, you buy fair trade coffee and you're in solidarity, but I'm saying right, right. That's, that that's an example of that transformative action. It, it changes how I think about my everyday decisions. And then how does that, um, how does that, well, like, so say for instance, we're talking about coffee farmers in South America because there's a great geographical distance. Mm-hmm. And so how like how does that feed back in then to their sort of local cause or their local mission and say on a real political level by real not what you're saying wasn't real I mean like for their day-to-day political interactions. Right. So how does us right. buying fair trade coffee in, you know, Philadelphia or Indiana or wherever sort of feed back into what they are doing on on a, a local level. 
Does that make sense? It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a great question, and and it might be nothing. Right. Oh yeah. But okay. it, but it it might be that um, that we are actually through our consumer activity uh, transforming a market and providing uh, these farmers with uh, with a market where they can continue to work on their small farms and and uh, work together in cooperatives and things like that. Now, I yeah. the paper today on mm-hmm. pernicious solidarities is also about when things like that go wrong, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I think they do, and I I think we you know. Um, it's very rare that we have a pure action, right? Especially a pure political action. And by that you mean so a pure political action, mm-hmm. one where we don't have dirty hands at the end, right? Where we don't cause some harm to someone somewhere. Right. Right. Um, and so the, the, then the trick is to, to try to find a, a means of engaging in political solidarity that uh, that makes sure that those local concerns mm-hmm. are central to uh, our decision making and central to our activity. And that we also, in seeing our all of our actions connected, in, in not only to other people but to to the, the solidarity cause, that we scrutinize um, the different types of power that we have. Mm. So it could be that my best uh, solidarity action in uh, in this, this this case of farmers in in Latin America or South America might might be buying fair trade coffee. It could also be that I need to actually challenge my own government to. To transform trade relations okay. in various ways. Yeah, right? yeah. So I, I need to own my own power within my context. What you can affect, mm-hmm. and say international relations or something for your own government. Right. Even even while I'm also, um, you know, seeking or claiming solidarity with. Yeah, yeah. People elsewhere. So and that, maybe that effect is also, like you said, just the socioeconomic prosperity of these farmers is increased in a way where they're imp- more empowered to be active on a local level or a national level for, you know, yeah. whatever part of the world they are in. Is yeah. my understanding that correctly? I think that's right. And I, it, now the, the, I think you see a lot of this in movements for, uh, to, to combat climate change too. Yeah. Uh, I, now I don't, I don't really use or like the, the idea of solidarity with the, the, more than human world, yeah, um, yeah. because I think there needs to Good be a, essay, by the way. a sharing. Oh, I want to mention you. that. Thank so you. I wrote this down, but the, um, one of the essays that I read, Political Solidarity and the More Than Human World, which was in Ethics and the Environment in 2013, really interesting, because I've listened to a lot of sustainability podcasts and a lot of, um, well, there's just some weird thoughts about out there about how the world, uh, how humans interact with the environment, um, for better or for worse. For better you know? or worse, right. Um, so anyways, and I, just, I did want to... those relations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if anyone out there is interested, I suggest this essay again. It is called Political Solidarity in the More Than Human World. That was really interesting. Um, the one essay, though, we have about two minutes, and the one essay that you wrote that I absolutely have to mention that I think should be standard for people to Uh-oh. use... <laughs> in an ethics class. Okay. And as a Hoosier, this meant a lot to me. I think I might know which one you're talking about. March Madness, a case <laughs> in applied ethics. Um, it was co-authored with Eric Riviello. Is that correct? correct. Um, and it was in Teaching Philosophy in 2008. So I came across this when I was researching, and I read this, and I thought, oh, this is so interesting because growing up in the state of Indiana, Obviously, I'm an expert in basketball, of course. both playing it, watching it, coaching it, philosophizing about it. Um, I didn't know you could do that. That's Yeah, awesome. I, well, I mean, that's one of the things you learn growing up in Indiana. And we're, at least being a Hoosier, we're pretty convinced that, you know, this is where the game was really grown. Um, no, I'm kidding. But so that, that is a really fun essay because it's, as you, as you mentioned in the essay, 
you're really focusing on something that is a part of students' lives. This is a real situation, and it's about the, the campus community. Um, but also, it's, I think, a great essay for, like, an intro applied ethics course because, you know, it's about basketball and university basketball March Madness. So I just want to say I was really – I found that essay, and I just tore through it. I read it, and I loved it, and I think I would use that in the future. I would love to use it because it's a great case. Thank you very much. But to end, I have to ask you um, a, probably the most important important question are you a fan of Villanova basketball oh uh hmm I think I have to say yes to that one (laughs) I've I've, I've taught let me say this I've taught some of those guys uh the the men's basketball players I've taught some of the women's basketball players too those those students was Gary Kittles there when you started yeah, he was there when I started. Harry yes. Kittles, one. Oof. Now I never, I never taught him. East. But, um, but these, these are stand-up people. They um, awesome. are really kind and and generous and nice. Jay and so, Wright seems like a great guy. Yes. So and I can't say enough good things about. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail that. No, but no. I'm, I'm bound by law, being a Hoosier born and raised, to ask basketball questions. Well, so, so. so they always laugh at me in class because I can't pronounce their names because I don't watch the games. <laughs> yeah, and so everyone's like, I Are don't you know kidding? This guy's scoring 25 points a game or exactly. whatever. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Exactly. Well, Sally Schultz, our guest today, currently the chair of the Department of Philosophy at Villanova University. Again, she is here on campus, here being Purdue University, giving a talk today, and that talk is. Is pernicious Solidarities, Equity in Solidarity Relations. That is part of our Diversity and Inclusion Initiative Colloquia series. Sally, thank you so much. And I have to say, this was the funnest grindstone to date. And I'm not just saying that. So thank you so much oh, for joining you. us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Terity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo, underscore Purdue.